Hi, and welcome to Time Out with Coach Tony Garbolotto, where we talk all things British basketball coaching. Today, we have a true legend of the game with over 40 national titles, coach to numerous national team players, and one of the pioneers of British basketball coaching. I would like to welcome Coach Betty Cadona, OBE. Coach, firstly, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, it's a real privilege and an honor to be able to talk to you. Um, as I always do with my guests, um, I ask them, you know, a simple question, but how did you get involved in the game? Um, especially, you know, due to the fact that it was such a long time ago um, where the game obviously isn't where it is that this uh, it is today. Uh, well, it was uh, just pure luck, really. I at, co- at college, I was training to be a teacher and uh, I played for the college teams, loads of the teams, but specifically with the netball team, we decided to go in and watch um, the men playing basketball. And young women who want to do in, the, in their university days. So we went in to watch them playing basketball and I thought it looked really good. So I suggested to the, the other netballers that we tried it. And we just played a little bit at college. But then when I got into teaching, and and I was teaching PE at that time, um, I'd done the usual traditional stuff, you know, netball, hockey, gym and dance, which was it in those days. And then thought after a year or so, I thought, really? We've done this now to death, these four. I enjoyed the basketball. I'll do some with the girls. And they just absolutely loved it. I can't tell you how much they enjoyed it. And the first thing they did when they were about to leave school was come and say to me, "Uh, will you start a club up? And there we were, the first ever women's basketball club. (laughs) Betty, uh, at this time that you're talking about, what type of knowledge of the game of basketball did you have or, you know, did you have some coaching um, type of ideas and who were some of your influences at this time? No, not at that point because I knew um, about what you could put on a postage stamp about basketball. Um, In fact, when I look back, I think, oh, my heavens, how much did I actually not know? But um, we played... And as we played, we realized we needed to find people to play against. And as there were no other women's teams, we joined the local men's league and played in the local men's league. And um, through that, I got to know people. And in the early days, and obviously I got, more into the sport, looked into it, how it was run, etc. And decided to go for my level two. And it was Maurice Wordsworth who took my level two 
uh, course, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I have to say, Morris was a great help to me in those days. And, uh, you know, I, I have to mention him because then when we, a few more of the women's teams started to get set up, we ended up in the first ever final of the women's game down in London against a team called Abbey Wood. And, uh, of course, we haven't got a coach as such because I did the coaching in the training and in the local league. And I asked Morris to coach us on that occasion, and he did so. So Morris certainly was uh, an influence. And then I would have to say I realised that we needed to try and get a coach. And at that time a team called the Scorpions, I don't know if, a team called the Scorpions were playing in Sheffield and they had some really good players. And one of the university students who was a player in the Scorpions, I managed to persuade him to come and coach us. His name was Bob Berry. And you're going back a lot of years to remember him. Was there a uh, light bulb moment or a time uh, when you realized that you wanted to coach uh, the game of basketball? I think an offshoot, really. I loved teaching at that time. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough money to go in and teach nowadays, but at that time, I loved it. You know, it, it was something that I thoroughly enjoyed. And the coaching came as a result of, of the young women who were infused by the basketball in the school time. And then who went on to become the first lot of players. And then finally, I think the final thing was when I was a bit older and um, Bob had gone to Australia, and um, I changed back into a sort of player coach. And my husband said to me, you need to decide whether you want to play or coach because you're not doing either as well as you can do. So I think that was possibly the light bulb moment. I was reluctant to give up playing. I was reluctant to give up coaching. But, you know, he made the point very nicely to me. <laughs> and... Um, I thought, well, yes. I mean, by that time, I was in my 30s, and I decided to certainly give up playing with the first senior team. Was there some early parts of your coaching philosophy that you can remember that uh, resonated, that you were starting to um, form at this early stage in your coaching uh, career? I think, again, it was, um, at that time, it was possibly a, a lack of knowledge, what it would entail, you know, what was required. And also, when, when we first started the team, I had a bit of a light bulb moment in the very early days because I suddenly realized 
on one occasion when only six players turned up to training that I couldn't do it that way. And I just said to everybody, you either turn up to every session or don't bother coming. And um, because I was so annoyed that there were only six people there when there should have been 12. And at that point, some of them did stop, but it didn't bother me in that sense because I've always said give me six totally committed players above a squad of 12 where three quarters of them couldn't care less. So it was really getting ourselves established correctly with the correct disciplines and what we needed to do to play in the National League as such. So we were a bit late. Plus we went in... When we did go into the league, um, again, it was a time when I was sort of having to make my mind up about um, whether I was going to keep on coaching or keep on playing. So that was it, really. Where at this time were you finding uh, additional information for coaching um, and the game of basketball? Um, at this at this time that we're talking about at this moment? What I did, because I quickly realised, as I mentioned earlier, that I didn't know a lot about this sport. So I actually uh, investigated, looked around. Oh, and one of the places we played in the early days, someone that did have a women's team, was an American air base um, in North Yorkshire. And we went there to play and we became big friends with the basketballers at this um, air base. And we were very honored in a way because apparently what the air bases did at that time, they used to fetch over a very sort of prime coach from college basketball to do a course for all the American air bases and uh, I got invited to that so I went and I then went to every possible course I could find and get on honestly I've been to loads and loads and loads of courses because I wanted to know more I wanted to learn and I wanted to learn from different people I'm from the best people. It's great that you were able to access these types of courses and resources. And I know that um, speaking to you in the past, we've obviously talked about um, that's just such a great uh, type of situation for any coach to be able to continuously go on these type of courses. Who else at this time was helping shape your coaching kind of first uh, parts of your philosophy? Well, in the earlier days, and because I kept on doing that for years, years, even when I became a national coach, because I'm a firm believer, you can never stop learning. Someone can always give you something a little bit extra. And if they can't give you anything else, they can reinforce aspects of how you coach yourself. So I went, still kept on going on the courses. And um, I think the thing is that 
if I had to say one of the most, the biggest influence of anyone, though, was Bob Berry, who first coached us as the first women's team. He had quite a philosophy, that young man. He played for England, but he was five foot nine. And he was totally uncompromising. You know, you look at the different styles. Well, with Bob, there was only one style. You you did what he asked you to do, and you did it as hard and as tough as you could. I mean, he one of his first one of his rules that's always stayed with me, and he had numbers of these was if you were in the wrong half of the court when somebody was attacking your basket or before the next training, whenever, you had to do 10 sprints of the court. I totally loved his rules. I mean, we lost one or two players because he was so uncompromising. But basically, I I loved it, and I, and particularly he was um, very much about let's be a team. So after every training, we had to go to the pub. There was no asking. Finish your training, you went to the pub as a group, and things like that. You know, I mean, the other the other one that. Uh, often stays in my in my mind about him is and unfortunately we did lose a couple of players as a result of his methods so to speak um, but you know I've spoken to some of them since and they all regret it but he did because of his uncompromising ways but he had all sorts of rules like that, things that you should and should not do and get, you know, you have got to work hard all the time. If you didn't work hard, if you didn't meet his standards, you'd get the punishments and so on. And I know that we've gone through different eras in basketball where they say, oh, punishment doesn't work and you're not supposed to give people press-ups and things and I think that's often depends on how the punishment comes about and you coach and how they deal with it. Coach, I honestly, I, I think that we have gone you know, too far the other way now uh, with this situation. I, I, I honestly think that young people um, on the whole are struggling with the concept of true hard work uh, determination, resiliency, and in my personal opinion, there's no doubt that they are softer than ever before. And I'm not sure. And I, you know, it's again, it's my own personal belief, but I don't think this is a, a, a good mixture um, to produce high-level athletes. Um, and of course, I am being, you know, this is a generalization from my side. Well, I. Absolutely, totally. And another example, well, two examples with Bob very quickly. Uh, one player had not got, no, it, it was this one was about being late. If you were late, you sprinted 10 times around the court. And oh, that day, I'll never forget it because I was slightly late. 
and one of the younger girls was. So we were given our 10, so I duly did mine. And she was 18, and her mum had come with, come with her. And her mum said, no, she's not doing it. So Bob said, well, you better leave then. So she turned up again to the next session with her mum, and Bob said to the girl and her mum, what, why are you here? And to train. He said, right, before you train, you've got 10 laps to do. And that girl and her mother took that girl away in such a strop, and we never saw her for a few years. She came back to the sport, but she definitely regretted it because she was a very talented young lady and missed out on a number of years. And then the other one was, and this is, people can't believe this, but I understood it. We went down to play in London and we played the team. I don't know if you remember these names with Pauline Birch and uh, they were called the Tigers. Anyway, we went down and we just um, gained a new player, a teacher who'd come up from London, very tall, about 6'2", great netball player, but wanted basketball and became a really good basketball player. And we um, went down to the game, and the first thing she did was go over and hug all her London friends and what have you, came back to the bench, and Bob said, right, sit on it, because that's where you spend in the game. And we were like, oh, oh, my God, speechless, because, you know, she was one of our best players. Um we, we played a sort of a fast-breaking type game, and she was, at her height and athleticism, she was often, there, you know, up her head and scored multiple points. But she sat during the entire game out, and he said to her after, before we start, they are your opponents. You don't go and socialise and be friendly with them. After the game's over, then you do that, and we'll all socialise and talk to each other then. But before the game, no. And she spent the game on the bench. When we talk about uh, dynasties in British basketball, uh, we definitely talk about programmes like uh, Crystal Palace and Kingston and even to the latter day, someone like Newcastle um, Eagles. Um but what you built is for sure on that level and some. Um, so talk to me about how the club started to grow and what was the process to, to start building this incredible um, club? The thing was, we went in and we actually were the, came bottom in the National League the first year we ever went in. I mean, it was a soul-destroying year because we lost games by three points and two points and everybody was get, getting really down. So we went down into Div 2, but we won Div 2, came back up. And at that point, you know, I was learning more and taking on board more things and adopting more things. And we started to move up the league. 
And we started then because it's really strange, but people are drawn. They want to go and play for winning teams. You see, for me, why not go and play for a good team that's fighting to go up the system, not go want to go to someone who's already made it there? But anyway, that was this. And a number of players came to university in Sheffield and we'd got the girls that were developing from our own system. And so I got together a core of players who were used to playing together, used to the way I did it, because some people got a shot when they first came to play for us. I remember one very athletic young woman scored a lot of points, came from Loughborough, and uh, she missed a training session. And so when she came to the next one, I asked her why she'd missed it. I said, first of all, you should phone me. Secondly, it needs to be a really good excuse. And she said, well, didn't have to do that at the last club. And it took a bit of time for her to assimilate into that mode. But I think when you've got a core of people who do, then it's much more difficult not to do because you can see the others adhering to standards of training, of attendance, of, you know, all that important stuff, the discipline that you're talking about. And if you don't adhere to it, you stick out like a sore thumb. So people sometimes took a bit of time getting into the way we did things. But then we ended up with a real good call, one or two. My uh, my daughter, Vanessa, met somebody at the World Student Games and she wanted to come and play. And so we got a really good core of players. We worked really hard. We got all the ingredients, great guards, a superb post. And the most important thing everyone with the right attitude. And from then, we just went up the league till we got into the seventh place. And I mentioned this because they, you know how they hold the playoffs. So seven plays two in the final playoffs. One plays eight, two plays seven, three plays six, and so on. So we were playing two, and it was the YMCA down in London, and they had Andrea Congreve in their team at the time, uh, you know, and uh, Sadie Mason, who was a great player. They had some really good players. It was, uh, I think it was Mark Clark coaching them, and we went down as number seven to play two, and we'd actually missed out. A couple of players couldn't go because they were in... Well, they went, but they couldn't play because they were injured. And that left us with seven players. So I just said, you know, jokingly, right, girls, it's the magnificent seven today. And they responded, and we beat them. And would you believe I got a phone call from... Uh, England basketball at the time saying 
Well, you'll have to send me all your information now because I'd already set the program up. What was the first time you realised that your team was really starting to get to the next level and, uh, you know, you saw some real progression um, and something that was starting to grow? Well, I think the first time we went into Europe and we were playing a Spanish team and we were at home first and everybody in basketball just about was telling me how wonderful the Spanish were and they were always athletic, they could shoot, they could do this, they could do that. And I have to confess, uh, we all got a bit sort of, hang on here, are we going to get, you know, really sorted out? And we were expecting these miraculous players. And so we started the game and we went 14-0 down after about three, four minutes. And I called a timeout and I said, right, now's the time to start realising we can beat these. You know, we played for four minutes and I looked at them and I thought, why was I so scared of him? Because I'd had all this advice from people about how good they were, how athletic they were, and all this, that, and the other. And I'd fallen, you know, prey to it. But four minutes into the game, I realised we could beat them. So I called the timeout, called it, and actually we we went on... And I think we lost by two points. So I was actually, in the end, pleased with everybody because everybody turned out the sort of performance that I knew we were capable of. My only problem then was worrying about um, if we actually beat them, it was a two-legged competition. at that time, that if we did actually beat them, because I thought, we go over there and we're prepared, you know, I'm not expecting miracles from them like I was before. We stand a good chance. Um, But there were two reasons we didn't. One, from playing us the first time, they brought in a, a, a new American player, and um, so when we got there, it was um, it was a bit of a surprise, really, to see this. She was very good, tall, very good player there. But we we got past that worrying too much about that. But then on my mind all the time was the fact that if we did win this, how would we afford the next round? I actually phoned Fever up and asked them, I said, what if we can't afford to play, we get through and we can't afford to play the next round? And they said, we'll just find you the same amount of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> having said that, I couldn't coach not to win. So the fact that, you know, we overall lost by an aggregate of, an aggregate of three points, it, you know, it, it happened. But 
it just shows you, doesn't it, the things that I certainly think that British coaches have had to work with all the lives. Coach, can you talk to me about how your coaching philosophy um, was developing at this stage and uh, what you were doing tactically and technically um, around this time? Well, the thing was that um, I was never a big advocate of of rigid offences and plays. Um, and, I, and what I picked out of nearly every coaching clinic I went to was um, get your fundamental skills right. Get your fundamental skills right. So I concentrated more on that, really, than learning complicated offences. And I always thought that one of the most valuable things you have as a coach in your players is the creativity of the players. I mean, some players have great basketball IQs, and why limit them? And I always said to them, I don't care if you change the offense as long as you change it for something better and worthwhile. And I tried to do offenses where every time they caught the ball, it wasn't just one thing you did, but you had at least three options that then the, the, the play would follow on from that one option. It, sorry, from that one position. But there were three options. But who can actually, actually say you're going to be there at that point on that court? Were you, um, around this time, were you rigid in your, um, in your systems, like offense and defense, transition, um, were they changing season to season or, or were you trying to keep a, a kind of core set of, uh, of structure, you know, season to season? Yeah, it was really. I put it, you know, and bits I put together from different coaches. And also, I also believe you you got to play an offense that suits the players you've got. And we, for some years in the 90s, would you believe, we had quite a small team. So I actually initiated a 1-4 offense, basically to keep players away from the basket, because near to the basket, we were the smaller team. So we used that as a basic. And funnily enough, we've still got a number of those players who are playing in Masters tournaments, and they still want to use the 1-4 offense. How did you build such a culture of winning, you know, almost on an unprecedented scale? Um, some of these seasons are just almost incredible to, um, that I've read about and people have told me about. So how, how did you build such a, uh, that, that culture? I, I, I didn't particularly see myself as a pioneer or anything. It was, it, for me... In some respects, a lot of it was instinctive coaching in terms of 
look at this game. This is what's happening. We need to be able to change the way we play to fit in, to help us, you know, beat the other team. And above all, the underlying aspect I, I said to every player was you've got to be tough. You must be tough. You must give it everything you've got. And I've always said, give me five players who will go on court and die for you and you'll not lose many games. It sounds like to me that your standards and your values were so strong and and obviously are so strong that your players commit 100% to everything um, that uh, that you talk about and you you value. That's that's what we did. We played as hard as possible and competed for everything. I had one player, and I used to say to the others, the great thing I like about her is if there's a loose ball near her, I know that she'll either get it or there'll be a jump ball. I knew that nobody would ever take it off her. And that's the sort of player you need. Coach, uh, talk to me about uh, how you felt when uh, uh, you retired uh, from senior coaching. Um, You know, just your thoughts on what you'd achieved and the next stage. Well, even when I... uh, I think when I actually retired from coaching in the WBBL, my daughter took over. I didn't really, I, I said that, you know, I'm retired. I ended up taking the under 40. <laughs> I, I don't, I love coaching. I love coaching the young ones. You know, it's it's just something you, I'm sure, must know that you either love coaching or you don't. And it's very, it's, and what I think's wrong, I mean, and just going back, stepping back a little bit, I never knew what was what. When uh, John Atkinson sent me an email saying, oh, you're now the first coach to coach 500 National League games, I hadn't even got a clue. I didn't know. My main objective and I love the team. We've got. I've had some fantastic characters in the team, which has always been a major influence. Tough, fantastic characters, people, people that you'd want to know, you know, off the court and that sort of stuff. But people like John, I've always looked up to John. He's he's got you know such knowledge and skill. I think it's I think it's really wrong that he isn't used more for many of the initiatives that come out involving coaches. His his knowledge is is so much. I don't see myself being as knowledgeable in any way, shape, or form as. John and I certainly have never had a desire to or done much actual presentations to coaches um, but I see him as a, a great coach 
Uh, Coach, um, talk to me about uh, your thoughts on um, British basketball coaching in general and um, also maybe some thoughts on our coach education system, which I know that you've had um, quite a lot of uh, involvement with. To be be fair, at one time, people were voted on the board by... by, um, position in terms of was it coaching, was it competitions, was it refereeing? You weren't voted on just as a board member. You had a particular responsibility. And I never ever thought of standing for the board. It was Martin Short, Derby, who said to me, um, Director of Coaching is coming up better at the, uh, the next uh, annual general meeting why don't you go for it you do so much so I thought oh I might do so I went for it and I got voted in and I have to say that I was given uh, a lot of help and leeway by the board and the chairman and the people at that time so I didn't feel restricted by them in any way and one of I brought a number of things in. I, I uh, introduced the annual coaching conference, and I tried to always get a, a worthwhile coach who was leading on the conference. But I also remember that at one conference, and of course I went to coaching things put on by Sport England and you name it. And I I introduced the idea of revalidation because I think that's correct. Some people get a level two award and that's it. But you need to keep refreshing your mind and you the way you do things and listening to other people. So I brought up the idea of revalidation at this particular coaching conference. And obviously one or two people said, oh, well, you'll lose a lot of coaches, won't you? And I said, well, if we do, they're not the sort of coaches we want. Anyway, it started to turn a bit in that direction. And then, and I regret this, I never should have done it. I was asked to be chair of Basketball England. And I didn't want to do it at first, but the board, and do you remember people like David Latham? Ian the M persuaded me to do it. And one or two other people on the board. And um, I became chair. I wish I'd never done it. I wish I'd stayed as director of coaching because that's where my real love is. And I felt that from then, a number of ideas that I, the coaching conference ended up disappearing, revalidation flew into the mists of yonder. And I don't know, I, I just think it needs somebody out there who wants to get hold of it by the neck and say, right, this is what we're going to do. And I don't think people should be allowed to keep a coaching award if they don't 
revalidate it. Having said that, it's then up to the governing body to ensure that they can easily do that. Coach, what would you do with our coach education system to improve our coaches and the standard of coaching? I don't think, well, I don't know if you've heard, but they're trying to revise the BCA, the Goal Coaches Association. And I think that's something they need to be sure they do properly, encourage people. Um, I do think that we've got to talk about knowledge and teaching. I mean, for instance, I have a grandson who's 25. And due to uh, a sight disability, he was a great player up to 18, but from 18, he decided to leave and go into coaching because of coping with the increased pressure of the older age groups. Um, And he loved coaching. Now, I talked to him about going on clinics and attending this or that or the other. But what they have nowadays is the internet, you see. And he does research an inordinate amount of stuff on coaching. But I still say to him, you still need that other aspect. You need to talk to other coaches. You need to listen to other coaches. I mean, he listens. I have... We do speak with him. Vanessa speaks with him uh, a lot about coaching. But most of his stuff he gets through the internet. As it turns out, he's he's turning out to be a a really good coach. He he coaches our under-14 girls, and they absolutely love him, even though he is tough on them. Coach, uh, I'm getting to the end of the... Uh, I'll chat today, so I'm going to give you some end-of-game questions. Um, I call these uh, uh, rapid fire. Um, and the first question, which I know is of all the coaches I ask this to, totally unfair to you, but could you name the favorite players that you have coached? It is unfair because one of the main things was we don't have superstars in this team. We're a team, <laughs> no iron team. So I would say in answer to that question, my favorite player is any player who goes out onto the court and shows me what they want to do, and that is to win. That's an awesome answer. And to be honest with you, um, I'm sure a lot of the coaches that I ask want to to answer that way, but a fantastic answer. Um, Favourite all-time basketball coach? Oh, oh yes. Ettore Messina. Honestly, he just blew me away when I went to watch him at a clinic in Paris. By far. A great answer and uh, one of my all-time favorite coaches. And uh, I know that that name has come up uh, a number of times. Um, Last question. Do you have a favorite go-to saying? Well, the the one I said the most was when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And sometimes made them even dance to it. (laughs) 
coach, uh, I want to say it has been uh, a real honor and a privilege to have had you on the Time Out podcast. Um, and I want to lastly say that I think I speak not only for the British basketball coaching fraternity, but also the whole of British basketball when I say thank you for all that you have done uh, for our game and for coaching. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for your kind words. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to another episode of Time Out. You can now find all of our episodes on iTunes and Spotify, so please like, subscribe, and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode.